start with this. I sometimes think that we all have some word or some trait that we most hope does not describe us. There's some flaw uh, that hits us at a real deep emotional level that we most want to not be true of us, but we're secretly afraid it might be true. I don't know what that word would be for you. For me, that word would be weak. I've always hated that word. I've always admired people who are fearless and people who have strength of character, people who just immediately have this kind of fighting spirit. They would stand up to a bully. They would say whatever's going on in their mind without worrying about what other people would think about it. Always loved that and wish I was more that way. I don't think there's anything that I hate more personally just at a visceral level than the fear or worse, the knowledge that I am weak. Partly that can be a physical thing. Um, some people have bodies that are just genetically pre-wired for strength. I wasn't given one of those. When I was a freshman in high school, I was six feet tall and I weighed 120 pounds. And I was pale as a ghost. One summer day, the high school group from my church went to the beach and I took my shirt off and the comments were unpleasant enough that I quickly decided I was never going through that again. One of the ways that I knew Nancy was the person for me was the day that it occurred to me, I think if I went to the beach with her, I could take my shirt off. Because <laughs> she's very kind. She wouldn't humiliate anybody. Uh, and for another reason, uh, I think she really likes me. And for another reason, we've been married five years now. and <laughs> Probably about time. Uh, it's a strange thing. Uh, my weakness is real, and it's more than physical. And I want to hide it. I would like to pretend that it's not there. But of course, you don't get any healing when you're hiding something. So what if there was a place where people could go and reveal our weakness and our inadequacy and this is the word that I'm afraid might be true of me that I hope nobody guesses. And where we could actually experience acceptance and love and even healing. So this is a message for weak people from a weak person. I know we mostly want messages that tell us that our abilities are remarkable and our circumstances will get better and better and determination will always prevail and we can do it. This is not that message. I'll just tell you up front today, if your life is going great, your marriage is effort-free, they keep promoting you at work, Northwestern is begging for your kids to apply, your cat is grateful and affectionate, strangers tell you you should be in an infomercial for how to get great abs, this message is not for you. <laughs> for the rest of us who live in a world where our family gets shattered, or marriage crumbles, or a diagnosis comes that you think is too much for you. Or there is a betrayal at work or a disappointment in a relationship that you think is just going to devastate you. Or even though you're here in church and you want to look happy, you want to be happy, you can't make the anxiety go away. You can't make the depression go away. Or that addiction, that habit defeated you again yesterday. I want to invite you to join me 
in the fellowship of the withered hand. I was first introduced to it about 35 years ago. There was another young pastor who I didn't know well. His name was Paul. He and I had both been invited to go speak for a small group of pastors in Ethiopia. Ethiopia at that time was still under a Marxist dictatorship, Colonel Mengistu. And so these were all pastors of churches that were largely underground. Mengistu would ultimately be found guilty of genocide of up to 2 million people, including the head of the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia. So it was a very scary time. Um, church leaders were often in prison. When I got there, I found out they actually called the prison um, the university. Because they said very often when God wanted to grow up a leader, that's where they would go and they would really find God in prison in the university. So those two days had an intensity to them that was very strange for me. Paul and I would take turns. We would each speak for about 90 minutes at a time, starting quite early in the morning and going all the way through until bedtime in a cramped, crowded, dark Sweaty room. We did this for two straight days. And in the final session, Paul talked about a story that's actually told three times in the New Testament. I think in Matthew and Mark and Luke. About a man with a withered hand. And Paul's whole point was this man's weakness and inadequacy and shame. Um, We're not told whether the man was born this way or suffered some injury. One ancient commentary says that he was a stonemason, and so this injury would make him unable to work. In Luke 6, we're told it was his right hand that was shriveled, and in the ancient world, that was the hand of agency. That was the most important hand, the hand to make work possible. So very possibly this man was a beggar. Very possibly no woman would marry him. He was attending uh, a synagogue, a service of worship, so he would have been a person of faith. He knew the stories. In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of stories about healing, including one in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings that involves the healing of a man with a useless, shriveled hand. So why not him? He had surely prayed for this day after day, week after week, year after year, like you might have prayed about your word. But nothing. Most of the people who receive healing in the New Testament come to Jesus and ask. They beg a leper, Jesus, would you cleanse me? A man with an epileptic son who's just desperate. A blind beggar on the side of the road, Bartimaeus, who asks so insistently that the people try to shut him up. This man, the man with the withered hand, did not even ask. We don't know why. Maybe he was polite. Maybe he was shy. Maybe he had doubts by now. Deformity in the ancient world often came with a stigma, as it does in our day. Maybe God was punishing him. Maybe that's why he had this problem. I imagine him sitting there hiding his shriveled hand in his robe because it was his shame, and he would hope nobody would notice, but somebody did. And that somebody, ironically, was Jesus. 
So a very strange moment in Luke 6, verse 8, Jesus says to this man, get up and stand in front of everyone. The wording is so interesting. Not just get up, not just get up and stand. Jesus deliberately says, get up and stand in front of everybody here. In other words, expose your shame. In other words, reveal the ugliness that you try so hard to hide day after day, year after year. Jesus deliberately sees this man and calls him to do this. And for who knows how long must have seemed like an eternity for him, he sits there. His lifeless hand twisted inside of his sleeve. And then the text says, so he got up and stood there. And now what he most doesn't want to happen, happens. Everybody's eyes are just on him. Worse yet, the people he most wanted not to be there are there. Healthy-handed religious people with strong right hands, they used to greet each other and do important work and shake their healthy right index fingers at the sinners and the shamed. A church service, a worship service, was the last place he would want to expose his withered hand. And Jesus knew this. He knew how religion, which can be the most transcendent search in the world, can also do terrible things to people, can wither people's hearts, can make them exclusive and judgmental and superior and unloving, so people are afraid to be real around them. Even here, many leaders would be opposed to Jesus helping this man because it was Sabbath, and, and they valued rule-keeping more than they valued people helping or people loving. And one of the versions tells us that this attitude on the part of people of faith made Jesus deeply angry. It's a strange thing. Uh, uh, religious communities, religious people will often exclude the stigmatized. People that have a physical stigma or emotional or mental, uh, the sexually marginalized, uh, people that have been arrested, criminal, the poor. And Jesus drew stigmatized people to him like they were a magnet. In fact, uh, the word for stigma, you might know, comes from a Greek term, stigmata, uh, the Apostle Paul uses at one time when he has suffered, he has been stigmatized, he has been stoned and beaten and humiliated, and he says, I bear in my body the stigmata, the marks of Jesus. His mark, his signature, his calling card became the pierced hands by which he was nailed to a cross and declared a criminal and executed by the state. There's something about Jesus. You got a stigma, you come to me. And he speaks a second time. Doesn't help. Now for this man, things get way worse. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Well, that was the one thing in all the world that the man with the withered hand would most want not to do. You don't go to synagogue to expose before all these wonderfully religious people of faith, what you're most ashamed of. Not just that, this was the one thing that the man with the withered hand could not do. He had tried a million times. A child could do it, not him. 
His will was somehow unable to make the neurons fire. And his faith, or God, was somehow unable or unwilling to heal that. Jesus drew everybody's attention to the man's shame and weakness. For it wasn't the man's weakness that would become the hinge of his story and the turning point of his life somehow. It was his weakness through which the kingdom of God would make itself evident. He was asked to do what he couldn't do. And he must have thought to himself, my whole life has been centered around managing my withered hand, covering it up, keeping it hidden, disguising it. Uh, and now all of that's undone. This is the worst moment of my life. Until it wasn't. So that's the story in the New Testament that my friend Paul spoke about in that dark, cramped, crowded, sweaty room. He kept saying, Jesus asked the man to do the very thing the man could not do. Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. And then Paul said, it's that way with us. What God asks us to do, what we know we ought to do, who we know we ought to be, is precisely what we can't. Paul, was so interesting to me. He didn't try to inspire these pastors by talking about how strong they could be, as I would have been tempted to do. He didn't say, you know, you can defy this Marxist dictatorship. You can withstand persecution. You can overcome poverty. You can build a church. You can save a country. He said, Jesus is asking you to do what you cannot do. You are too weak. Stretch out your hand. And then the most amazing thing happened. Uh, the leaders in that little room started to cry and cry out to God. And they began to pray. And they got up from their chairs and they started to confess their sin. Just spontaneously. Paul didn't ask them to do that. They talked about their fears of the government and of being arrested. They talked about their jealousy of other pastors' ministries in the room or their families or their bodies. They talked about their deep inadequacy. They spoke of their bickering little churches, their lack of love. And there was healing and reconciliation and hope that was getting poured in somehow. And this went on deep into the night and they would not go home. I'd never been to a service like that. In the States, that doesn't happen. Church is over and people know you're supposed to leave. Leave fast and beat other people to your car in the parking lot. Be the first one out. That's how you win at church. They would not leave. And what came into that room was power. Was power. And we all knew it. But nobody was in charge of it. It did not come through giftedness or training or inspiration as good as those things are. It came in utter weakness. Who knew? It came when people felt a need so great they just had nothing to hide anymore. It came in the honest confession of ugliness and fear and sin and guilt and shame. It came to the fellowship of the withered hand. Paul and I talked 
afterward about how the best things that happened to us on that trip often happened more in spite of us than because of us. We'd been asked by this church leadership group to smuggle in 50 large, inexpensive, illegal, I'm sorry, large, expensive, uh, illegal study Bibles. This is back before the internet and everything. So for a pastor in Ethiopia, if they were going to learn, if they were going to get any kind of education, they're underground, they needed these great big study Bibles. One person at our church gave me an extra one, so we actually brought 51 of them into the country. And I can remember when my plane was landing, I remembered I had never taken a class in smuggling when I was going through seminary and maybe kind of nervous about like what will happen. And sure enough, one of the Bible suitcases was confiscated at the airport, one of the suitcases that was filled with like 25 of the Bibles. And the leader of the group that we went there to serve was summoned to the airport. So we were all quite anxious about this, not knowing what would happen. It's a true story. Customs official took him into his office, closed the door, said they had found the Bibles, and they would release them on one condition. So he waited to hear what kind of bribe he was going to be asked for. And the bribe that the customs official requested was that he, a Marxist customs official for a genocidal dictator, be allowed to keep one Bible for himself. So we got all 50 Bibles into the country. The extra one ended up in the hands of this Marxist customs official. After a year or so, Paul and I kind of lost touch, but I never forgot his message. I never forgot what happened that night. I've learned a lot more about this fellowship, the fellowship of the withered hand over the past few years. And so I was talking with a little group of pastors about that quite recently. And one of them stopped me and he said, I, I, I know Paul. Paul was my best friend for many, many years. And then he went on to tell us how just very recently Paul was at a gathering and tipped back in his chair and fell and broke his neck and died. And it made me wish that I had been able to thank Paul for what I learned from him so many years ago when we were both kind of starting out. And grieve for his family and church. It was another chapter of pain in a suffering world where there is so much I don't understand. And where I increasingly am aware we are not in control of anything, not even our own lives, just nothing. You know, you wonder, of course, when you read about the story, why did Jesus make the man stand up in front of everybody? Why didn't he just heal him privately offline? He could have done that. Why would he make his weakness so transparent when nobody would want that? And I think, I think maybe part of it is because Jesus was wanting to begin a new kind of community where people who are needy and imperfect and inadequate and deformed and carry a stigma are particularly celebrated. Because shame can be hidden, plowed around, or it can be healed, kind of not both. Many years ago, I decided in my own life, I would like to have a friend before whom I have no secrets at all, who knows everything there is to know about me, whatever it is. So I had known my friend Rick for about 10 years by then. We had gone through grad school together. I asked him, would he be willing to hear my confession? Well, I just tell him everything there is to tell. And he said, yeah, it took me several weeks to prepare. Just remember, write stuff down. And then I went to meet with him, and uh, I walked through everything emotionally, relationally, sexually, 
in my marriage as a dad, financial failures, lies, cheating, jealousies. When it was done, no kidding, it was so bad, I could not stand to look him in the eyes. I was just looking down. And I had no idea what he was going to say next. It was like he held my soul in his hands. And I'll never, ever forget what he, he looked me in the eye and he said, John, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. And it felt so good, I wanted to make up more bad things just to hear him tell me <laughs> how much he loved me in spite of the stuff that I was so ashamed of. And I realized in that moment, I can only be loved to the extent that I'm known. It's the law of the soul. You may tell me that you love me, but if there's some part of me that I know you don't know about, I'll say, yeah, but if you knew the full truth about me, I can only be loved to the extent that I'm known. I can only be fully loved if I am fully known. That is just a law of the soul, and you cannot plow around it. So we've been friends for over 40 years now. We call each other now, Monday through Friday, pretty much every morning if we're available at 6.50. Talk about how did yesterday go? Where were you tempted? Where'd you mess up? What are you facing today? How can I pray for you? What's sometimes called a fully disclosing friend. Maybe you would like to ask God to help you find a friend like that. James 5.16, so interesting. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. There's something about coming into the light, being known and healing that's all combined together. So maybe this is your day to say, I want to begin to pursue that. Now, it takes time. Don't go up to a stranger right after this message and say, want to hear my darkest secret? Um, you have to get to know somebody, discern their character, kind of gauge. Uh, a guy named, spiritual, uh, named um, Allred lived many centuries ago, wrote a wonderful book on spiritual friendship. And he said it's kind of like you have to have people on probation and you find out. Do they offer you unwanted advice? Do they get judgmental? Are they gossipy? Do they have good character? So it takes a while to build that kind of trust. But I know church cannot be church when people are hiding. And maybe this is the day for you to stretch out your hand with a trusted brother or sister. One more step into the light about a secret shame. I've been studying AA a lot for the last several years. And as you may know, if you go into a meeting and you're going to speak, you always start by saying, my name is John. I'm an alcoholic. And the people always say, hi, John. Like, us too. You're welcome here. My friend Mike says that in this fellowship, the worse your story, the warmer you're welcome. That kind of ought to be the way the church works, isn't it? It was with Jesus. Uh, Christian writer, philosopher Kent Dunnington wrote a wonderful book called Addiction and Virtue. He says, one of the secrets in AA is that they have discovered the recognition and public confession of inadequacy is itself a spiritual achievement that must be ritualized and celebrated. Let's say that again. Part of the power of this community is, he says, they have discovered that the recognition and public confession of personal inadequacy is itself a spiritual achievement that must be ritualized and celebrated. So, Christ Church, welcome to the celebration of personal inadequacy. Welcome to the fellowship of the withered hand. My name is John. I'm a sinner. And then at this point now, 
in a spirit of love and empathy and we're with you and we know what it's like. Let's try it one more time. My name is John. I'm a sinner. That feels much, much better. Thank you. You understand, this man had no idea it was his weakness, not his gift, not his strength, not his beauty, not his IQ, not his connection. It was his weakness that would enable him to be a part of a story that would be remembered and celebrated and inspire faith and hope and build community 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. Here we are, talking about him. I think maybe another reason why this man's story went so public is that we're really all like him. It's just that some of us are better at hiding our withered hands than others. And for some reason, until we are driven to desperate need by our own powerlessness, we are stuck with what only our own power can do, and we were not meant to live on our own power. Author named Richard Rohr wrote, until you bottom out and come to the limits of your own fuel supply, there is no reason for you to switch to a higher octane of fuel until and unless there is a person, situation, event, idea, conflict, or relationship that you cannot manage, you will never find the true manager. So God makes sure that several things will come your way that you cannot manage on your own. Isn't that good news? And this is why God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Who wants that? When I was finishing grad school, going to Fuller Seminary, I had to decide between becoming a psychologist, which is where I did most of my work, or a pastor. And I did therapy, but I found when I did therapy, I didn't like it a whole lot. And the longer people saw me, the more unhealthy they got, which is not a good thing if you're going to be a therapist. But I started also to work at a church, First Baptist Church at Lacrescenta, and started preaching. And there'd be moments when I do that when I felt so fully alive. And I thought, God, I think this is what I might have a calling to do, love to do this. Until one day when I was preaching at First Baptist, and the sermon wasn't going well, and I was five or ten minutes in, and I started to feel kind of woozy. And the next thing I knew, I woke up and I was laying on the platform. I had fainted dead away on a marble platform in the middle of my own sermon. And it was so embarrassing. And there was a lot going on. It was almost time for finals in grad school. Nance and I were about to get married. We were going to live overseas for that first year. So I thought, well, it's because a lot of stuff's going on. But we came back one year later. Uh, the very next time I went to uh, preach at that church, I fainted dead away again. <laughs> and the worst part about it was, it was a Baptist church, not a charismatic church where you get credit for doing that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, by this time I thought I was called to preach, but you can't preach if you faint on a regular basis. It makes people kind of nervous. And so I asked God, would you just take away this feeling? And he didn't. It just kept me in there. I, I went to see a psychologist all through that next summer. And one of the things he said was just take a chair with you and put it down on the platform. 
I'm not making this up. So for that, for that whole next summer when I would go to preach, because my senior pastor, John Anderson, said, you know, you're just going to get back out there, get on the horse again. You're going to preach if it kills you. I'm going to send you out there every week. So I did, but there'd be a chair here. And then if I felt bad, I would sit down in that chair. And I kept praying, God, just take this feeling away. And uh, he did not. But I'll tell you that the scripture that was with me and has been ever since was when Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, and he asked God three times, take it away. And God doesn't, God doesn't, God doesn't. But God answers his prayer. Doesn't give him what he wants, but he answers his prayer. And what he says is, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. What kind of kingdom is this? So, I know this is Oakbrook. This is Christchurch. You are bright, educated, gifted people, I know. But I want to ask you, what is your shriveled hand? I used to think, without ever reflecting on it much, that I can mostly do what needs to be done. I can get this job done, I can grow an organization, I can raise a family, I can do the dad thing, and I have come to realize I can't. I can't fix my heart, can't fix my family, can't fix my resentful, anxious mind, can't make my fear about what's going to happen go away can't make my sadness go away, can't fix my shame. I don't mean I used to not be able to do all those things, but now I'm strong and I'm okay and I will share with you the secret. I mean, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. So strange that sometimes in, in the church of all places, we think we have to come in power with a strong right hand. You may know the 12 steps of AA uh, all come from a, a Christian background, an attempt to recapture a Christian discipleship called the Oxford Group. Uh, the first three in particular, very powerful. The first one is uh, admitted that we were powerless over our problem and our lives had become unmanageable. And then the second one came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And then third, made the decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Sometimes those three steps are summarized in three simple phrases. I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. I can't. Anybody ask you what this sermon was about today? Just those three phrases. I can't, God can. I think I'll let him. So where we start is finding other people in the same desperate condition. And when we do that, our mutual weakness releases a kind of spiritual power. And I have begun discovering my own little chapter of the fellowship of the withered hand. So let me ask you today, are you willing to name yours? What is it that you most want to do or be that is not in your power? 
Maybe it's your grief. Maybe you've lost something and you feel like you've never recovered from it. Maybe it's a disappointment in your marriage or in never having been married. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a failure. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you are old and you carry a regret that you would pay all the money you have to be able to undo and it cannot be undone. Maybe you are young and you have a fear about the future that feels like it's choking you. We come together today as the fellowship of the withered hand, so it's just a real simple invitation. Stretch out your hand. That's what a little child does, such a beautiful thing. Nancy and I became grandparents not too long ago. Any grandparents in the room here? Being a grandparent, if I had known how good it is to be a grandparent, I would have skipped the kids and gone right to grandkids. (laughs) A friend of mine told me it's this way. He said, when we had kids, I realized I would kill for my kids. But when we had grandkids, I realized I would kill my kids for my grandkids. (laughs) And it's kind of that way. This is the universal, universal sign of a little child, just... Pick me up. Help me. Love me. And see, the heart of God is, oh, my son, oh, my daughter, stand up in front of everybody. Stretch out your hand. You know, this could be that kind of community. People are dying for that. People are literally dying for that. You can find God in that. I don't know why. I don't understand why, but I know this to be true. In the face of desperation, where your worst pain is your helplessness and your inability to do what you would give everything to be able to do, you will find God in a way that you will never find him when you are healthy and gifted and beautiful and strong. Stretch out your hand. I want to invite you to do that right now. So if you want to, just bow your head and close your eyes where you are. Just name it right now. Um, Maybe you need to do a little bit more reflection on it, but there's a real good chance when you think about what's that weakness, where's that inadequacy, where's that shame, Where's that withered hand? There's a real good chance you know what it is. Just name it before God. You know, God knows all about it. Jesus will walk right into your life, right into this room, just like he walked into that synagogue 2,000 years ago, right here. I love you. I want to help you. I want to be with you. I want to touch your life. May not be that circumstances end up the way that you want them. I may not take that thorn away. Didn't with Paul. Maybe, but maybe not. but I will bring you my presence and love and hope and purpose and meaning that you cannot get from any place else, not from all your strengths. Jesus, as your power came 2,000 years ago, 
and has come ever since into rooms all over the world, unexpected, undeserved. May it come now. Would you bring healing and openness and light and forgiveness? Pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.